0: You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take 12 men from the people, from each tribe, a man, and command them, saying, Take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priests stood, uh, feet stood firmly. And bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. This is God's word. Well, I've often said and, and, and even felt strongly that I have been cursed with a good memory. Some things I really wish I would forget. <laughs> And I remember experiences in great detail. I remember useless facts and movie quotes. I mean, it makes good for parties. Um, I remember TV commercials from the 90s. Like, we'll just, like, in detail. It just, it really bugs me. I remember details of a room. If I just go into it once or twice, I can just remember where things were. I remember how to find the area of a circle, you know, pi times the radius squared. But you guys knew that. I just remember things that just st- stick in my mind. Um, I have a good memory, but obviously I don't, I, I do forget things a lot. I don't have a great memory all the time. I forget what I'm supposed to pick up at the grocery store. Um, I forget sometimes why I walk into a room. I forget lots of things. And, and you and I are inconvenienced at times with um, varying degree of poor to good memory. And Joshua 4 exposes a great enemy of the faith of God's people. Perhaps, maybe even greater than uh, human armies and natural circumstances and physical dangers, and even a raging river that they need to cross, is a greater threat of the forgetfulness of God's work in their life. A greater threat than all of that is a poor memory of what God has done for them. A. W. Pink was an English uh, Bible teacher about a hundred years ago. And reflecting on Joshua 4, he says this, and I love what he says about Joshua 4. He says, Joshua 4 is a sermon written in stone. Literally, right? It's a sermon meant to tell a story uh, through this physical memorial of stones. These stones which God commands his people to gather together were meant to be a sign and a memorial to the powerful and faithful work of God towards them during this season of their life. And they were commanded to remember. They were commanded to gather these stones. So this is a sermon set in stone that is meant to never leave us, that we are to remember. Uh, This passage, this scripture, this story, a sermon written in stone to tell a story to God's people that would cause them to be faithful in the days ahead and cause us to be faithful in the days ahead as we remember what God has done for us. And so we come to this text this morning. We see this story in Joshua 4, It is a story for us. It is a story to remember. It is a story to tell to others. And ultimately, it's a story to rest in. We're going to look at those three. Why don't we look at this story to remember? We're told to remember. So here is what's happened. Here is what has happened. God's people have crossed onto dry land from the east side of the Jordan over to the west bank of the Jordan River. And they have done this as the priests have taken the Ark of the Covenant into the midst of the Jordan River and the sides of the river, the walls swell up and pile up as we're told and they walk on dry land just as they did through the Red Sea after they were rescued from Egypt. And now all of God's people, all of Israel stands on the west bank of the Jordan River, adrenaline pumping, heart racing, celebrating that 40 years of wandering and waiting and the promises that were made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua have now become a reality. They stand in the promised land that God promised to give to them. Twelve men go back to the Jordan River as they're commanded and they pick up these stones and they're told they, they're, they're big enough, they have to carry them on their shoulder, right? Large enough, they pick them up from the bottom of the Jordan River, and they take them to the Gilgal camp, probably a mile or two away uh, from the, the bank of the river where they are going to sleep that night. Probably 75 to 100 pounds per stone as they carry these stones on their shoulders, and they bring them to this place. And then they return again, and they do it again, and this time piling up stones in the midst of the Jordan. And then the priests, they're standing there in the middle of the river the whole time, and then as soon as they cross the river on dry land and enter into the banks, the west bank of the Jordan River, the walls of the river come crashing down, and the river flows just as it was before, burying the stones there to where they are to this day, under who knows how many miles deep of sediment and things like that. God rescued these people from slavery He rescued them from hunger, from thirst, from famine. He rescues them from wandering for 40 years. And there on the first day of their life in this new land, God opens up a school of remembrance where they are to remember forever what he has done in their life. Why all this careful planning? Why all these detailed commands of what they are to do with the stones? I think it's pretty obvious if we just think about it for a moment. God is ordering this memorial to take place because it is a solemn reminder that our hearts are prone to forget what God has done in our lives. We forget. And the overall purpose of these stones, these piles of stones, that every time they are to come by these stones and walk by these stones, they are to reflect upon the work of God in their lives. And if reflecting on that work is meant to strengthen them in their faith because they are prone to forget. And when we forget what God has done for us, our hearts wander from him. This is one of the great failures of the people of God that we learn all throughout the Old Testament. This is the great theme of the failure of their faith. They keep forgetting what God has done. It is basically a recorded history of people that just have really bad memory of what God has done for them. They're enslaved in Egypt, God's people, for 400 years, and and God remembers them, and he sends Moses to redeem them. He sends 10 plagues on uh, Egypt and Pharaoh's army, and he rescues them from Egypt, saving all of them. And they go into the desert, and not much longer after they are rescued, after all their prayers have been answered for 400 years, they they melt down all the gold that they have and fashion it into a calf and worship that calf and say, where is God and what has he done for us lately? And they forget what he has done for them. Psalm 78 tells us that future generations will forget what God has done for them and they will wander from his word and his commands, not because they're evil, not because their hearts are wicked or that they are trying to rebel against God, but Psalm 78 tells us this exactly why. Why? They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. They forgot, and their hearts began to wander. Again, in Psalm 106, they, he, then they believed his words, they sang his praise, but they soon forgot his works, and they did not wait for his counsel. God did mighty things among the people of God for generations, and it wasn't that they just woke up one day and decided they didn't want that life anymore. These were people that worshiped God. They praised God. They, they went to the church You know, they were a part of the church. They were singing and praising and recounting God's blessings and then they just started to forget and their hearts wandered from him. It's so easy to look at the the people of God in the Old Testament and critique and criticize their faithlessness and say, man, if I was there, I can't believe if I saw the Red Sea splitting open, I would, how could you do that? How could you deny God's power and presence in your life? How could you ever disobey him? I would never do that. How could they, how could he see that? Some even said this of the New Testament people. If I saw Jesus raise a dead man from the grave and walk on water and turn water into wine and heal the sick, I would never doubt him, never forget him. Jesus took five loaves of bread and two fish among a crowd of people, thousands and thousands of people, and he multiplied this food, this little meal, and he fed everybody. Everybody stuffed their bellies, and there was still food left over, and Jesus did this miracle twice, we are told. And not long after that, and this is true, it's a true story recorded in Matthew, not long after that, Jesus was walking with his disciples who witnessed all of this, and they're walking into Jerusalem. And they get into Jerusalem about lunchtime, and one of the disciples says, really hungry, and I forgot to bring any food. What on earth are we gonna do? And Jesus turns to him and says, that, and this is a true story. You could read it. I'm gonna paraphrase though. This is what Jesus says Are you serious? <laughs> are you serious? Do you not remember anything? Do you not remember what I did with five loaves and two fish? And then he says, what is, Why are you the way that you are? <clears throat> now, that part was my part. So, but I feel like that's what he should have said. He should have said, like, seriously what you just saw, what I did, and now you're hungry and saying, there's no hope, what are we going to do? They forget, and so do we. It's critical to the faith of the Israelites that they have a living sign, a monument, to remember what God has done. Because unless they do that, unless they're diligent to remember, they're going to forget. To be diligent, to recall the works of God, to remember and to bring to mind what he has done. And it's equally important for us to do that as well. Because when we forget, we start relying on our own strength. We start relying on on chance. We start relying on good things to happen to make us feel better. We start relying on our own character or the character of others. We forget what God has done. So what are our stones? I mean, what are the stones that God has given to us? Well, one is God's word, God's story in the permanent written form. For us to come back to every single day, wherever we are, to hear of his story and to remember what he has done. To soak in his word and to be retold stories over and over and over again. I hear a lot of people say this, and I've said it before myself. When they come to God's word and they open up the scriptures and say, I just don't get a lot out of it. I just don't, it's just dry. It's hard to read. Sometimes you come to God's word and you will not get an emotional experience. And sometimes you go to God's word just for the purpose of remembering what he did. And that is enough. Because remembering what he did, it reminds us of his character, what he did and what he promises to do. And we learn about who he is and how he will be faithful to do everything he said he will do. He will not give up on us. Because the God who parted the Red Sea and rescued his people and parted the Jordan River is the same God who speaks into your life today through the stories that we read in his word. Remember, this book is, is, is not primarily a story about you and I. This is a story about God and how he makes all sad things come untrue. It it is a story of God revealing his nature and character and mighty works to us. This is a story from from front to end, from the beginning of the story all the way to the end, of God and his mighty work to save a faithless people. It is not a story about you and I becoming morally good. Now, there's a lot of morality in it, but it's not primarily a book of morality, it's not just about history. I'm sure it's, there's a lot of history in there, but it's not just a history book. It is about remembering what God has done and who he is. It's not about a story about just becoming stronger or more righteous, but about remembering that God is mighty, that he is righteous to save in all of his ways, and he loves us despite our failures. His word is, 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 the, is, a, is, a, is a, a memory stone. For us to go back to and say, now I remember, I forgot that. Not just the story, but I forgot God's endless and boundless love for me. We have regular worship. It's another memory stone. We gather on Sunday morning. We get up out of bed, we set our alarm, we, we get our kids out the door. We, we struggle to, to prioritize Sunday worship, but it's this rhythm of gathering for remembrance and renewal and encouragement. We tell this story every single week. We, we come holy, we, Jesus saves us, he sends us into the world to show and tell of this great story. That's why we gather. Maybe you've noticed that in, our, in the order of our worship. I'm just going to read the introduction to our worship bulletin. Can I do that? Okay, listen up, okay? Our worship begins with God. We gather to experience the gospel story that tells us that God is holy, we have sinned, Jesus saves, and we're sent into the world to manifest this good news in word and deed. Our service is ordered in such a way to reorient our hearts and minds around this great story. That's been there for 10 years. Maybe some of you have never read it. This is our heart. We want you to know, like, if every single one of you walked out of the doors of this church, I should be able to chase you down and and ask you the question, what on earth just happened in there? What was this all about? And we would want you to be able to tell this story back to us. Well, God is holy. We have sinned. Jesus saves us. And this grace is supposed to overflow from our heart into a life lived to his glory and joy. And I'll say, great, come back next week and we'll tell it again. That is the purpose of our gathering. So our Sunday is, is a reminder that because we forget we forget throughout the week. We get caught up in, in, in all of our responsibilities and cares. The Lord's Supper is a visible memorial stone for us. We, it's, it's a visible expression of these invisible realities of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And we are told when Jesus institutes this meal for us, he says, this is my body, this is my blood. Eat of it, drink of it. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. As often as you eat and drink of this, you proclaim my death until I come back. So Jesus is instituting this memorial stone for us to take of this meal that every time we come to this supper, we reorient our hearts and minds away from our own self-sufficiency and own pride and onto the righteousness and love of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. Our testimonies are memorial stones, the work that God has done in your life. We call to remembrance. Our testimonies, our own story of redemption and rescue are stones of memorial that we can remember. Some of us forget. You know, not just the moment that you were saved and became a Christian, but even the monuments throughout your spiritual walk that if you actually took time and asked and thought through, how have I seen God work in my life? I've done this might be a good thing for you to do. I've done this actually on numerous occasions. I'll go out into the desert, I'll be alone for an entire day and I'll just start at my earliest memory <laughs> in a notebook. What's the earliest thing I could remember? And I'll put the date cuz <laughs> I remember and what I was wearing. And then and then I would just go down and I would just I would just chart God's work in my life until I couldn't write anymore. And there will be dozens of things that I forgot. And I, I, can't, I, I forgot that God was there in that moment. I forgot that God was faithful. I forgot when I was hurting, and he showed up. Our testimonies, his work, his movement in our life, our stones of memorial to remember what he has done for us. Life groups, our small groups uh, of community at Holy Cross, these become laboratories of grace for us as we see the work that God's doing in another person's life, and we share of the truth together through his word. We are reminded and all of these things and more become these unique settings where invisible things of God's work in our life become visible and we need to remember. Now, I get it, right? This is, it's so typical, right, for a pastor to tell you, read your Bible, come to church more, go out in a Bible study, right? It's just so typical. Of course, I would say those things. Pretty predictable. It's like an auto repair guy saying, your, you know, your cabin air filter really needs to be changed. And you're like, I think I'm all right, you know? And maybe you're thinking, okay, I know there's lots of things that the church offers, but I, I think I'm okay. Why do we do any of this? We do not invite you into just a frenzy of spiritual activity just for the sake of being spiritually busy. We invite you into things to help you remember. Deliberately forcing yourselves to intentionally contemplate and reflect on God's work in your life is to the benefit of your Christian faith. And to forget, to intentionally contemplate the work of God is to the detriment of your faith, to your Christian faith in your life. And here's the difficult thing about remembering. We never remember what we forgot. Okay, let me explain. If I ask you, what have you forgotten about the work of God in your life? You will reply, I don't remember. <laughs> okay, all right, you're with me? You can't remember what you forget. That's the weird thing about forgetting. We re- but we remember when we come to the stones and we can't help but, but remember. We come to the stones and we say, now I know why that's there. I forgot. But now I remember. It jogs our memory. It brings to our mind and to our hearts the work that God has done. We come to God's word and we are retold the stories of his faithfulness for our rescue over and over and over again. And this strengthens our faith. It doesn't just give us a stronger mind and a smarter mind to know the stories of God. It strengthens our faith. We need to remember these stones were vital to the growth of God's people in their faith. They were obedient to do it. And imagine, imagine just the generations that went by as they walked past these stones. And the scripture gives us a tremendous picture of this to to imagine the future of what this could look like. Because not only is this a story to remember, it's also a story to tell. And that's where this passage goes, right? Israel was not only to remember uh, the, for themselves, but tell this story to others. And you could picture it now, and I love how it paints this hypothetical scenario in the future. 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you're going to be walking along this place where you lodged for the night. On that day that God opened up the river and you walked over. And a father will be walking with a young child and this maybe six or seven, year, eight-year-old daughter will look up at daddy and say, daddy, I count 12 stones in this pile and it doesn't look like they belong there. It looks like they're from someplace else. What are those? And the daughter's curiosity becomes an occasion for communicating this great work of God, the great news of God's astounding Grace and love and rescue and power and faithfulness for his people. And also a remembrance to his own heart as this father is reminded of the details of that story. Because that daughter wasn't there. She wouldn't remember. Maybe it happened a generation ago. But the father would remember. Maybe he was a teenager when it happened. I think there's a few implications of this, of this story that we have to tell, is that God's blessing in your life are not meant to be just for you. We are to look beyond our own interests to the interests of others. When God blesses us, when God changes us, when he comes into our life and rescues us, this is always meant to overflow into blessing for others. We are blessed to be a blessing. Seeing God's Love for us is not meant to just be internalized, but it is used to transform our lives and to impact and benefit the lives of those around us. God's discipleship program is generational. His discipleship plan is relational. It is never meant just to be God to change our hearts and us to keep it for ourselves. He equips people for ministry, and whatever that you engage in, you are meant to tell the story of God's saving love. That's why we do anything that we do. Another implication, there's an implication that, that all Christians who have been changed by God are competent enough to communicate the gospel to others. This isn't for the Bible teachers or the seminary trained. This isn't just for the pastors and the missionaries or the people who are just good at theology. This is for anyone. Sometimes the only qualification that you have to teach the gospel to others is your personal testimony. Think of these people who have crossed the Jordan River, a million people. That's, that's That's the estimation of some. A million people. Cross the Jordan River. And this is the only testimony. that they, they don't have the Bible. They don't have a class. They don't have these documents. What they have are this. We were, we were on that side of the river. And then we got on the other side of the river. And it's all because of God in the middle. That's all that they have. And that's it's funny. This passage in, Ch- in Joshua 4 actually tells this story twice. At the end, we didn't read it. But it reiterates it almost word by word. This is the story you're supposed to tell. We were on one side, we got to the other side, and it's all because of God in the middle. And Sometimes that's the only information we have. The only qualification we have is a life that we know that has been changed by God. Think of these people across the Jordan. Think of the man born blind in the New Testament. Man born blind, he's blind his whole life, and Jesus touches his eyes, and now he can see. And he is interrogated by the religious leaders at the time and says, tell us what happened. What on earth happened? And he says, I don't really know who this was, but here's all I can tell you. I once was blind, Jesus touched my eyes, and now I can see. What else do you need to know? Go talk to him about it. Every Christian, every Christian has this, an old life, a new life, and God's gracious, powerful love that separates the two. Have you contemplated that reality even for your own life? An old life, a new life, and God's gracious and powerful love that separates the two. This is the implication that we have a story to tell. And we are able to tell it better when we spend more time remembering truly the implications of what God has done for us. Another implication, and third, is that Christians ought to teach the gospel to children in the nursery on Sunday mornings for, for, at church. Sorry, I tried to do that with a straight face. You guys didn't think that funny. I thought the first service really liked that. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe so though. But notice this in verse 6. I'll, I'll leave that for you to decide. The language in here is this question. Here's the question that this little kid asks. What do these stones mean to you? I love that. The parent could say, well, just go ask one of the priests. come We like pay them, like go ask one of the priests. But this little kid looking up at her father and says, and then there's two words at the end, I think are just so changes the whole sentence. What do this, what do these stones mean to you? How did it change you? What does this mean for you? Don't tell me the story and the history and just like, I don't need information. I want to know like what this means to you. And we get to seize this moment to share of our lives with others we get to model what it looks like to be people who have an old life and now a new life and knowing in the middle is God's powerful grace. We were on one side of the Jordan and God split the waters and we, now we were on the other side. And then that kid's saying like, well, what is that? Well, so what? What does that mean to you? Well, it's, it, it, it reminds me of God's faithfulness that he never gives up. It reminds me of his love. It reminds me of his, of his loving care. It reminds me of all of, my, all of my failures and faithlessness and all of my rebellion and all of my grumbling in that old life. Here I am on the other side of the Jordan, and I don't deserve to be here, and yet here I am. And you can be too. That's what it means to him. The stories which we tell are never stories of our own triumphant might and success. Do you notice this? God never tells us to remember our faithfulness and strength and might. It's the opposite. The stories of God's abundant grace, the stories of God's powerful rescue in the midst of our weaknesses. Notice this story, it's not just a story of information. It's a story of real transformation. God is not interested in us just remembering history and remembering facts. God is interested in, being, in us being changed people. And that's why this is a, a story to remember and a story to tell. But, but more importantly, it's a story to trust in, to rest in, to really find peace in. If you remember from chapter 1 of Joshua, uh, when God tells Joshua, here's what's going to happen. You're going to take the land. You're going to go into, across the Jordan. And numerous times he actually says, what's going to happen when you get there is you will find the rest that I've promised to you. The rest that would come to God's people when they crossed the Jordan and settled into the promised land that was promised to them for generations. It anticipates a rest from hostility, it anticipates uh, a rest from fighting and from the instability of life in the desert and a rest from all the hardships of being a people without without a home. And it describes the peaceful rest that comes to the person who is close to God. Can you imagine the kind of party that happened that night? After 40 years of waiting and wandering and laboring and sleeping outside, and they're finally on the other side. I mean, just that that rest. But this chapter anticipates a rest still that is yet to come. And it's really interesting here. God promises rest which is this deep soul rest, a deep peace. And in chapter one, he uses this word numerous times. It's the Hebrew word mana, And it's this deep soul rest, a beautiful word, rich in imagery of, of the soul of a person that finally exhales and is just at peace. But there's a word in Joshua 4 that he uses twice that isn't that kind of rest. It's the word lodging. It's dry. It's emotionless. It's just like, this is where you're going to sleep. It's like, it's just a two-star hotel. There's a bed. That's it. Because there's this still in this passage, an anticipation of the rest that is yet to come that they have not found yet. Um, there's still a deep anticipation of rest, coming to God's people and it comes after all the work has been done, and the work isn't done yet. Moses couldn't finish the job. Abraham couldn't finish the job. Isaac couldn't finish the job. Jacob couldn't finish the job. Moses couldn't. Joshua couldn't. They still can't now, even though they're on the other side of the Jordan River. The job is still not done. You and I can't finish that job either. Every great work of God and every great great action was all meant to anticipate this greater rest that can only come through the accomplished work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus takes upon this this kind of rest, and even he applies it to himself, and he says, the kind of rest that was promised to them is only found in me. That's why he was killed, because the people that were hearing him say this sort of thing said, are you greater than Moses? Are you greater than Joshua? He said, yeah but not in the way that you think. Every great work of God anticipates the great work of Jesus on the cross to give us that kind of permanent soul rest that can only be found in him. The greatest work of God is the victory of sin on the cross through Jesus Christ, where he gave his life for us. The greater miracle than rescue from Egypt, the greater miracle than crossing the Jordan is that Jesus loves us and gave himself for us. And here's the clue. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had a meal with his disciples. And it's known as the Last Supper, right? You know this story. He breaks bread. He pours out wine. He offers the bread to his disciples to eat it. He offers this wine to his disciples to drink it. And he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Every time God did a mighty work, He said, here's what you are to do to remember my mighty works. And every time he did a mighty work, he said, remember my mighty work. Remember, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And every spiritual leader, the best that they can do is say, do this in remembrance of him. Do this in remembrance of him. No one is bold enough to say, do this in remembrance of me, except Jesus. Because Jesus is the mightier work. He is the greatest work. He is God in the flesh coming to us and saying everything that has been done has been for this purpose, for you to know that I must die for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The great sin of God's people is to not remember what God has done for them. And here in Joshua 4, the memorial stones are there to remind them of God's great work. And these stones are not to remember the work of the priests. They're not even to remember the faithfulness of of God's people. They're not even to remember Joshua or Moses. They're to remember the faithfulness of God. And at the Last Supper, Jesus takes these memory stones in the form of bread and wine and says, whenever you eat of this, remember what I have done for you and you will find rest. Jesus is claiming to perform this greater work that Moses and Joshua and you cannot do. If you want to find that rest, if you want to enter into God's rest, you must delight in the satisfaction of Jesus' completed work. To take the judgment of God for sin that meant to be poured out for us, that is poured on Jesus instead. And he becomes our advocate before the Father, that our faith becomes the instrument then of our rescue and our salvation. What is the work? The work is him giving his body as a substitute for us. The ultimate work of God for our rest is the work of Jesus on the cross for our sins. In John chapter six, the disciples asked Jesus, "Well, well, then what's the work that we need to do? And he says, okay, you want to work? Here's the work you need to do. Here's the work. Believe in me that is the mighty work that we need to do is to believe that his work is enough for us. In a culture that values achievement and status and comfort above all things, we shouldn't be surprised to see a culture filled with tired, weary, and restless people that don't do a good job at resting. A people never ceasing from their labors, never ceasing from their rest. And if we fail to grasp what Jesus did on the cross, for us, then it will be impossible for us to find true rest. Instead, we will increasingly become filled either with despair when we fail or pride when we succeed because we will always anchor our identity in our ability to be the person we think we ought to be. Here's the person I need to be. Here's the person that God has told me to be. And when we do feel like we do a good job at that, we're going to be boasted up in pride and boosted up in pride. If we fail at that, we're just say, "Well, I'm just despairing and I'm a horrible person. I need to get my act together." Never resting, always working. But Jesus says, "I completed that work for you." It's so important to know the story of Joshua because it is a foundational model of salvation. It is a model and picture of how God saves his people. And throughout these stories, whether it's Egypt or Joshua or any of the other great stories of the Old Testament, God is making it very clear that we are only saved through the mighty, powerful grace of God. And it is our deliverance from the power of sin and suffering of all manner of weariness that we experience when we trust in him and remember him. It's not a story about you know, a particular people very long time ago that is just really amazing, but it's a story about how God fulfills his promise to bring salvation to his people yesterday and today and forever. The God who remembered the people in Egypt, the God who helped the people cross the Jordan is the same God who sent Jesus to be our savior, who remembers his promise to free us from slavery to sin. And if we belong to Jesus, we're part of this promise that was made to Eve this promise that was made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and Joshua, and all the great figures in scripture that we look up to and admire. You see, tomorrow we will wake up and desire to be faithful to God and to follow him. And in some way, we will prove to be inconsistent once again. We'll say, today's the day, I'm gonna do it right, I'm gonna be faithful, I'm gonna follow and remember you, and we will not do it perfectly. But God will not fail. And he will see us, and he will remember us, and he will fulfill in us what he has promised. And that is to meet us with his convicting love, his forgiving grace, and his renewing power to remember what he has done and to walk in his rest. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.